You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. Proverbs 13.10, there's a verse I quote often. I usually only quote the beginning half of it, though. But I think the second half is, <clears throat> is important because it helps to balance the first half. It says, only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Uh, when people are contending one with another, pride is always involved. That's what Scripture says. Uh, that it is only by pride, whether it's pride on one or probably both sides of the equation, there's pride there. Uh, and it is because we refuse to humble ourselves in the way that God commands us and asks us to humble ourselves. Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised, it says there, I just lost it, 13.10, there it is. But with the well-advised is wisdom. Um, Wisdom comes oftentimes through experience, but wisdom can also come through learning. And that's one of the best ways to learn wisdom, right? Uh, experience is a good school. Uh, experience is a hard school uh, because it leaves scars and it costs to go through the school of experience. Um, learning is a really good school too. But sometimes it takes, especially young people, uh, a little bit longer uh, to learn from the school of teaching, of learning, because uh, we learn better from making mistakes <laughs> and falling on our faces and getting hurt. Uh, and then we learn what not to do. You know, Camden, I'll often, at night when it's bedtime, he still sleeps up in a crib. And so I'll stand him up there on the edge of his crib. It's got a wide, you know, a wide shelf there. Charity used to fall asleep on that. She would climb up on the edge of her crib and with her arms and legs hanging over and she'd fall asleep there at night when she was little. But I'd stand Camden up on it. And then I back away from him, you know, teaching the kid to be balanced. You know, he's going to have the best balance of any of the kids. And then I'd have him, he'd scoot his way, you know, inches way down this way and inches way down this way. And then he'd jump and I'd catch him or he'd fall backwards and I'd catch him. And uh, he's getting a little scared or a little more scared to do it. You know, last night, he's like, no, dad, no, no. And I was like, what are you so scared for? I'm not going to let you fall. And uh, why do you think he got more scared? He's been doing it now for months. Why? Well, probably because he's fallen down a few more times and he knows it hurts. And the school of experience has taught him that falling from a high place uh, hurts. <laughs> and he doesn't want to do it anymore. Before, ah, jump, who cares? Nothing's going to happen to me because it never does. Well, now a few things have happened to him probably. And he doesn't want to fall off of there again, you know. And uh, he's learned from the school of experience. Now, wisdom here in, chapter, in Proverbs 13.10 but with the well-advised is wisdom. Who are the well-advised? The well-advised have learned not just their side of the story, but they have learned both sides, all sides. They've tried to find the truth in all ways as it is and tried to look objectively at the truth and understand it. You know, as Christians, we are to, yes, read the Word of God. We are to, yes, be in the preaching and learning from the man of God. But we don't always just take what is said to us in the services, 
you know, at face value. We have to take our Bibles and we have to go and we have to check on those things. And we build our doctrine, and this is being well advised, is studying those things out on our own. You know, you can listen to the talking heads on the radio or on the TV, but they, you know, they oftentimes have agendas. Uh, sometimes they're going to leave out certain facts because it doesn't go in line with what they're trying to get you to think. Uh, and so it's, sometimes it's good to get, have multiple news sources so that you can basically get a fuller, better advised understanding of what's going on in the world around us. So only by pride cometh contention. No, no, no. My side is always right. It doesn't matter what you see or say. Uh, my side is always right. It doesn't matter what evidence you want to point to. My side is always right. And then there's contention, but the, what the well-advised is wisdom. Here we're getting into the Protestant Reformation. And you know, there's a lot of positive things that can be said about the Protestant Reformation. And there's some, a lot of negative things that can be said about it as well. And we want to be able to look at all of these things and think about how difficult it must have been for these guys to have stood up in the way that they did it. Many of them, it cost them their lives. It cost them their careers. It cost them quite a bit to do what they did. Now, from our standpoint, we would say, well, they didn't go far enough. Uh, they still got left in bad doctrine. Uh, they still were even dangerous, and they still even persecuted you know, the Anabaptists, and we'll get to that in a little bit uh, as well. Uh, and yes, those things were true. And so we want to look at it from, from both sides. Last week, we were looking at Martin Luther, and we looked at it from the angle um, of many of the things, well, basically how he grew up, how he came to the point where he decided to side against the Roman Catholic Church, of which he was a priest. I remember he um, did not like the things that he was seeing. He went and he visited you know, Rome, and he saw so much corruption there, so it was so politicized that it bothered him very much to see that. Uh, and then he came home, and Tetzel shows up selling indulgences, which is found nowhere in scriptures. Basically, it was just fundraising for the church, and that bothered him greatly as well. And then he had the opportunity there in the library to actually read a copy of the scriptures, which was very uncommon. And when he was reading it and studying it, he found out that the just shall live by faith. And that verse was one that really captured his attention in Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. And he learned that so much of what the Pope and the church has been teaching me is inaccurate. It's not true. They're doing it in bad faith. They're doing it to be deceitful. And in some cases, they didn't know it was in the scripture. It wasn't in the scriptures either because they had never even read it themselves. They were just a part of this religious organism and they behaved in a religious way without any actual knowledge of scriptures themselves. Hey, as Baptists, let's not get caught in that problem. Well, I was born a Baptist. I was raised a Baptist. I'm always a Baptist. Well, what do you believe about this? I don't know. Whatever the preacher says. No, 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 that, that's not good enough. You know, what do you believe about the deity of Christ? What do you believe about the virgin birth? What do you believe about the inerrancy of scriptures? Well, whatever the Baptist line is, that's my line. Well, why? I don't know. Go ask the preacher. You know, <laughs> you know we, we need to have more to us than uh, this is my denomination, this is my side, and this is what I'm going to believe you know, for whatever reason, even if I don't understand what the reason is. We need to delve in and become well advised. So we started talking last week about Martin Luther. Said that he lived from 1483 to 1546. It was in 1517 uh, that he nailed the, the 95 theses uh, to that door, uh, thus sparking what many call the Protestant Reformation, or many say sparking the, 
the Protestant Reformation, the official beginning of it. Notice it was also, interestingly, October 31st uh, was the day he nailed uh, the, the 95 Theses on the door, and we just had an October 31st this week, didn't we? And so some people refer to Halloween as Reformation Day instead. Um, I don't celebrate either of them, but <clears throat> you know we, we take the opportunity on Halloween, since there's going to be people knocking on my door, uh, to hand out tracks. And I tell you what, we handed out a lot of tracks. Was it Tuesday night? What, Thursday night? I don't remember which night it was. But we handed out a lot of tracks Tuesday night. And we ran out. So many people were coming through. We ran out of tracks and turned our lights off and shut the door. Uh, that way, we, and we actually had a few people give us invitations to church. <laughs> they came to our door we looking for candy and uh, gave us invitations. And so we took the opportunity. The one time a year, somebody's going to come knock on my door for tracks and got several invitations out there and, um, you know, talked to the kids, you know, about why we don't celebrate Halloween and why we are doing what we are doing, giving out the candy. It's not because we celebrate it, it's we want to take advantage of this opportunity. And uh, so they, they take part of it. One of the kids will give candy and the other kid will hand them a track and uh, they have great fun. And of course, they get candy themselves as well. But the Protestant Reformation, what was it? It wasn't this outside force acting upon the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, you had the Anabaptists that were this outside force all along. Uh, ever since the time of Christ, there was you know, this apostolic church. There was a church that stayed separate, true to the word of God all along. Now you had this massive organism that was the state church of the time. What the Protestant Reformation was, it was a force from within. It was Catholic priests who said, we see so much corruption going on that we don't like it. Now, the vast majority of what Martin Luther was actually fighting against in the Protestant Reformation was not doctrinal. There was certain some, certainly some, some uh, doctrine in there, but the vast majority of what he was fighting against was mostly dealing with polity, with the way the church behaved with the corruption of the priests and so forth up the ladders, uh, with how they were pulling the wool over the people's eyes and abusing them. That was, that was the vast majority of what they were trying to reform from within the church. They weren't splitting away from the church. That's wasn't, that wasn't what they were trying to do. Now, ultimately, is that what happened? Yes. But that's not what they were trying to do. They wanted to reform it from within. They were more concerned with the abuses of selling indulgences uh, the style of worship, the selling of relics, uh, the, the immorality and the drunkenness of the clergy, um, and the, the persecution as well of dissenting groups like the Waldensians, like the Anabaptists. And so his demands to reform the Catholic Church were put all together in that document. And of course, I'm not going to go through all 95 of his um, reasons why he disagreed with the church and areas where he wanted to reform the church. If you want to know what those are, you can go and easily find them uh, online <coughs> and find out the areas in which he disagreed and why he disagreed. However, there was some, for, for the Anabaptists, they, they saw some light in this. Remember how back when Constantine came to power and he claimed to be a Christian and wanted to protect the church and grow the church? And, and so many of the Christians were like, hey, this is, this is great. This is exactly what we need is a Christian emperor to help us. And I tell you what, this is going to turn into the, the best, most Christian world ever. And of course, that's not what ended up happening. Uh, and they, after a while, 
many of the good godly people saw that it was just getting perverted and corrupted, adulterated. And so they stepped off to the side and said, never mind, we, we don't want to have anything to do with what you guys are doing. We're still just going to continue to be the faithful, you know, Bible-believing churches over here. And now we've got this massive state church to contend with. Many saw that and thought, hey, this is wonderful, but he did not, Luther did not get rid of all of the old baggage from his former association with the Roman Catholic Church. Luther pleaded for the supremacy of the Scriptures as rule of faith and practice, which is right. Uh, the supremacy of the Scriptures, not what the Pope says, not what uh, the Church says, not what any man says, but Scriptures alone for faith and practice. But he violated the Scriptures in several areas. Um, here are some of those. First, he established a church-state relationship for his church, the Lutheran Church, um, in order to protect himself. And Okay, pause. Luther did not leave the Roman Catholic Church. He was excommunicated. He tried to stay in. He tried to reform it from within, and he could not do so. At the Diet of Worms, um, I might be getting it mixed up but here, but Luther comes uh, before the leaders, and they, they tell him he needs to change what he's preaching. He refuses, and so they excommunicate him, and now he's outside the church. What's he going to do? He founds his own church. Well, in order to protect that church, he has got to get the favor of some local leaders. And in this time, the local leaders were pretty important because there was no internet, no cable television, you know, no way for news or law to be quick to travel quickly across vast expanses. And so your local leadership of your county or of your small region was very important. And so he got the protection of many of the local princes there in Germany. And so they protected his church, and he created a church-state relationship with there, uh, with with them, which ended up cause, which ended up turning into persecution, because now they're the state church of that area, and anybody, any other dissenters in this area that are against the Lutheran Church, well, at some point you're going to be getting attacked, and we'll talk about that. But he he created a church-state relationship uh, to protect his church. Uh, secondly, he maintained the practice of infant baptism, which you would think was one of the main things that he would have separated on. Now, it was one thing he didn't like. And for a time, he moved away from infant baptism, but he came back to it. He eventually justified it by saying that the infant baptism secured grace for the child through the parent sponsorship of it. Um, really, ultimately, well, actually, he, he said this. He said, baptism is not simply water, but water comprehended in God's command and connected with God's word, and it has a saving effect produced by the word of God. That was Luther's words, which is not biblical at all. The water has no saving effect whatsoever. It is just water. There is no water holier than other water. There is just water. In reality, what Luther realized is this, for generations, for centuries, for a thousand years, mothers had grown up believing that they had to get their children baptized in order to save them from that, from the effect of original sin, and they weren't going to just stop believing that all of a sudden. Uh, they had a hard time saying no to the baptism that they themselves had undergone, and so he had to accept that this was the way the culture was and had to go along with it. Also, Luther devised the doctrine of consubstantiation. Maybe you've heard of transubstantiation. Uh, the Catholics taught that. 
the idea that the, the wine and the bread become literally the body and blood of Christ as you take it in, as you eat it, as you drink it. Well, he said that uh, in, in consubstantiation, that Christ of his own will comes down from heaven to be present consubstantially. Con means with, it's a prefix that means with. Substance, you see in substantial, so the substance of the bread and the blood of Christ uh, comes with the presence of God, with bread and wine of the sacrament. Now, pause and think about that. Well, what's so wrong with thinking about Jesus Christ being present with us? Well, nothing, because we, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit in us, and, and Jesus is omnipresent, which means he's in all places, and so it's nice to think that God is with us. The problem is when you marry it to some form of ceremony, the process of me taking the bread, the process of me drinking that cup brings with it the presence of God. There's the problem. Remember how in the Roman Catholic Church, they had taught that there was these seven, seven sacraments and baptism was one of those and uh, communion was one of those things. And that those things brought saving value. Uh, that when you went through those ceremonies, that it brought some salvation to you. Uh, that it granted you some extra special grace. But that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches it simply as a picture. Because we are humans and we do well with illustrations. So baptism is an illustration. Communion is an illustration. So that we don't forget some important things. And so we do it in remembrance of him on a, well, for us, it's, you know, every, every few months, we do it so that we take that time purposefully. <clears throat> we plan a time to remember what Christ did on the cross, the meaning behind it, why he did it, how has it affected us. We take that time to remember, but it does not bring with it any special grace or any special value beyond the blessing that we get from taking the time to sit down and think about it and remember it again. Uh, because it needs to come to the forefront of our minds every now and then when we get off into the world's things and other things take its place in our mind, whether it be family or whether it be jobs or money or anything else, you know, even health. But it's good to take that time to purposefully put the blood of Jesus Christ and his body, you know, dying there on that cross, his sacrifice back into the forefront of our minds. So this idea of consubstantiation, this is extra biblical. Uh, it is counter-biblical. Uh, the idea of taking the bread, taking the cup, does not bring the special presence of God. <clears throat> um, finally, Luther also identified the church as an invisible universal church. Remember, Catholic means universal. Uh, the Catholic church had taught that it is the visible universal church. He taught uh, that the church is to be an invisible universal church. Um, that cannot be seen. Well, an invisible church does not have a pastor. An invisible church does not have deacons. An invisible church uh, does not, cannot meet together. And so uh, it, it, it may seem like a very fine line in some of our minds because sometimes I refer to the church and I, when, when I say that, I mean all of the New Testament you know, churches uh, that are around. Um, I don't conclude that we are all one church. You know, we are a local church here at Shenandoah Baptist Church. And that's what the church, in the sense, the bride of Christ is. It is the local churches. Uh, and so we have to be careful to not think of it that way, that I am a part of the universal church. And so it doesn't matter if I go down 
and and go sit in that pew over there or join the membership of that church membership of that church because I don't need to. I am a member of the invisible universal church. That was a uniquely Protestant idea that he carried with it. Well, Luther was successful in um, keeping his church from the Roman Catholic threat. In fact, he got to be so successful that he determined that he needed to get the Roman Catholics out of his area, out of his zone. All that was left now was to drive them out of Germany. Uh, Now Germany was a Lutheran area, and so he needed to get rid of the Roman Catholics. And in 1522, um, after certain bishops attempted to silence Luther, he responded by writing against the falsely called spiritual order of the Pope and the bishops. Uh, And in this, he calls for the Germans to drive out the Roman Catholics from Germany as wolves uh, by force. He says this, listen to these words. He says, it were better that every bishop were murdered, every foundation or cloister rooted out, than that one soul should be destroyed, let alone that all souls should be lost for the sake of their worthless trumpery and idolatry. Pause there. I can almost relate with what he's saying. What he's saying is, it would be better that all of these Catholic bishops be murdered and that every nunnery, every cloister, every group of Catholics be completely rooted out and destroyed than one person be led astray to hell. I can almost relate to that, except, man, that's awfully vicious to to decide universally that every person who is of the Catholic faith needs to be killed. I cannot agree with that in any way, shape, or form. Now, it's easy for, let me put it this way. There are TV preachers who who get up, who refuse to believe in hell, who think that everybody is already naturally going to heaven and try to preach these Uh, good works, kinds of faith, and those preachers are literally leading people astray to hell, thinking that they're on the way to heaven. Now, that that is damnable. That is terrible. Now, I'm not calling for those preachers' deaths. I would like for for God to cut off that ministry. But the fact is, uh, those kinds of ministries will continue They will continue on uh, until the Lord returns. They will continue on leading people astray and into hell. That's why we need to be louder with the real gospel from the word of God than they are with their false gospels. So in one sense, we might think, well, it'd be better if that person were no longer able to teach the heresy so they could stop leading people astray. But I'm not going to say or write or suggest that we need to form together armies or combine ourselves together with government to go out, round them up into camps and destroy them. This is what he is saying. He goes on, of what use are they who thus live in lust, nourished by the sweat and labor of others? He's speaking of, you know, these who are dressed in the fine clothes and eating the finest of foods uh, that they have raised off of the backs of the people who go to their cathedrals and their churches, giving all their money to them. He says, but if they will not hear God's word, but rage and rave with bannings and burnings, killings and every evil, what do they better deserve than a strong uprising which will sweep them from the earth? If they're going to ignore God's word, and if they're just going to continue hunting down anybody who disagrees with them politically, then what they really need is an uprising which is going to come up and destroy them. But he's not talking about just silencing them. He's talking about killing them. He says, and we would smile did it happen. All who contribute body, goods, and honor that the rule of the bishops may be destroyed 
are God's dear children and true Christians. So anybody who gives money to help eradicate the Catholics from Germany, anybody who gives of their bodies, their goods, or their honor to stop the rule of Roman Catholicism are God's dear children and true Christians. Obviously, we cannot agree with this part of what he wrote. The Anabaptists, they did see a glimmer of hope in the, the Protestant reform at first, but they soon realized that Luther and many others, they were still addicted to certain error, errors that would place them at odds with the Reformation. Um, just like you and I, as independent Baptists, we would find ourselves at odds with, with many Reformed churches, with many Protestant churches, with the Roman Catholic Church. We would find ourselves at odds doctrinally with them. So they were going to find themselves that way as well. Verduin, an historian, he wrote this. The Reformation did not begin on the night of October 31st, 1517. Luther's brave deed of that night no doubt, certain, uh, no doubt encouraged and inspired all who already had Reformation in their banner. But Luther found followers before he made any. Followers who later, when they saw where Luther was going, healed off again. You know, as soon as he begins to try to reform the church, there was a whole lot of these other Anabaptists out there and Waldensians and others who said, hey, that's right, you're right. You're absolutely right. I like what this guy's saying. Let me come over here and stand under his banner for a little while. And they said, we like he's, how he's, you know, criticizing the church. We like how he's trying to get rid of this error. And he's absolutely right in all of these areas. But after a while, these... Bible-believing churches said, well, he's, he's not going far enough. What'd you stop for? He's still addicted so, to so many of these, these false doctrines. Uh, never mind. It wasn't quite what I thought it was. And they been, began to back away. The same thing happens with our political leaders, right? We find a guy who we think is a great Christian. Uh, he talks good. Uh, and then you, you jump under his banner for a time, and then you realize, well, maybe it's just an act. Maybe it was just to get the, uh, you know, the Judeo-Christian population of America you know, to vote for him, and you begin to realize, well, he's not really what, quite what I thought he was, and then we begin to back off again away from them, and that sort of thing happens in the United States as well. But the, the population there in Germany of, of Anabaptists and Waldensians was so vast that it was said that uh, a traveler could travel from Antwerp all the way to Rome and still sleep every night in the house of one of their brethren. The, you know, the Bible-believing churches were still so prevalent and they were still spread so wide, uh, there was that many of them. Luther saw the Anabaptists as a threat to his church and he determined that they needed to be driven from Germany as heretics as well. In 1528, uh, Luther had, oh, you know, who had earlier, he had counseled leniency against the Anabaptists. Later, he advised the use of the sword against them, not only as blasphemers, but highly seditious. And so the death penalty was decreed in 1529 against the Anabaptists at the Diet of Speyer. Um, Speer, I don't know exactly how to say it. I'm not German. Well, I'm partially German. But in 1536, Luther signed a memorandum that was written by his comrade Melanchthon uh, who, that approved the death of the Anabaptists. And the very first German martyrs of the Reformation were actually converted uh, Catholic monks, Henry Vose, John Esch, and Lambert Thorne, uh, who had adopted Reformation views. Now, they were not Anabaptists, but uh, they were the first three to be killed um, because of the Lutheran church um, attacking those who did not agree with them. So, again, 
Do we come from the Protestant Reformation? No. Uh, there were always these Bible-believing churches out there who were trying to do what's right. Sometimes they might have, it, parts of them might have gotten dragged into the Protestant Reformation, but then they realized maybe that wasn't where they ought to be. And that doesn't mean that all of these churches believed exactly as we do, that all of them did everything right, because there is no church that does everything right. There is no church uh, that is perfect. But they were there, and they wanted to do what was right. So as we continue to study the church, we'll see that actually next week we're going to look at the formation of another state church. We've seen the Roman Catholics. We saw the formation of the Lutheran church. Next week we're going to look at the Anglican church, where it came from, how it separated itself from the Roman Catholic church. And they will move on after that to John Calvin and talk a little bit about him. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.